Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on HIV-associated cardiovascular disease. With us today is one of that issue's authors, Dr. Thomas Metkis, a fellow in cardiovascular medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Merkin Company, and VIIV Healthcare Company. Learning objectives for this audio program include assess the risks for subclinical coronary plaque in HIV-infected persons seen in the clinic, review treatment strategies to mitigate HIV-associated coronary risk, and diagnose and manage atrial arrhythmias associated with HIV. Dr. Metkus has indicated that he has no financial interests or relationships with any commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of his presentation, and that his discussion today will not reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Metkus, thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. In your newsletter issue, Dr. Metkus, you, along with your co-authors, Dr. Wendy Post and Dr. Todd Brown from Johns Hopkins, discussed new publications describing the increasing prevalence of heart disease in individuals with HIV infection. What I'd like to do today is discuss how some of that new information can be translated into practice change in the clinic. Uh, so if you would, Doctor, start us out with a patient description. Okay, sure. The first patient is a 52-year-old man who presents to the office for evaluation. He has HIV, diagnosed nine years prior and currently managed with tenofovir, lamivudine, and emtricitabine. His medical history includes hypertension and obesity. He smokes one half pack of cigarettes per day. There are no cardiovascular symptoms. The last viral load was undetectable, and the last CD4 T cell count was 782. So an HIV-infected patient comes into your office. Why should you be thinking about their cardiovascular risk? HIV-infected patients are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, including specifically myocardial infarction, and this has been demonstrated in several large epidemiologic studies. In addition to an increased risk of cardiovascular events, there's a higher prevalence of subclinical coronary plaque assessed by CT angiography or coronary calcium scoring and other such techniques. Hence, the first important step in assessing an HIV-infected patient is simply awareness of the increased cardiovascular risk, which translates into taking steps to mitigate that risk. Patients can present at younger than typical ages, so for this relatively young patient at 52 years old, this is a prescient discussion. Patients with HIV have a high prevalence of traditional cardiovascular risk factors, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, and sedentary habits, poor diet, and tobacco use. These risk factors are not mitigated by HIV per se, but merit equal attention and treatment. HIV-related risk factors include poorly controlled disease, either at present or in the past. Nader CD4 count and increased viral load have both been associated with markers of coronary disease in some studies. The studies on specific antiretroviral therapy agents, including protease inhibitors, are mixed, and the effect of any one agent on cardiovascular outcomes, if present, is likely small. How should cardiovascular risk be assessed in an HIV-infected person? What's the first thing to do? So the first step in cardiovascular prevention, irrespective of whether a patient is HIV-infected or HIV-uninfected, includes an assessment of cardiovascular risk, which yields a 10-year likelihood of myocardial infarction or stroke. There are many tools to do this, ranging from the Framingham score to imaging studies. The recently developed and updated ACC-AHA cardiovascular prevention guidelines advocate the use of the pooled cohort equation, which includes as variables a patient's age, 
their gender, race, blood pressure, lipids, tobacco use, and diabetes. The equation outputs a 10-year risk. Whether this equation has similar utility in HIV-infected persons as in the general population is not known, and this issue merits further study. The DAD equation has been published and adds exposure to abacavir, indinavir, and lopinavir to the traditional cardiovascular risk factors to assess risk in HIV-infected persons. This equation needs further validation and is not included in the current cardiovascular prevention guidelines. Now, given that HIV-infected persons do have a higher burden of subclinical cardiovascular disease, you talked about subclinical coronary plaque in your newsletter, and you mentioned it earlier in this discussion. Should atherosclerosis imaging with coronary calcium scans or CT angiography be routinely used in these patients? So the current ACC AHA guidelines would suggest that atherosclerosis imaging be considered in an intermediate-risk patient if the results would change management. So if an HIV-infected person is low risk by traditional metrics, there are no data to support interval imaging. Rather, a trial of lifestyle modification and optimization of the traditional risk factors, including with exercise and dietary intervention, would be warranted to start. If, on the other hand, a patient is at intermediate risk and would otherwise qualify for treatment, atherosclerosis imaging could be considered. Our group and others have shown that HIV-infected persons have a high burden of non-calcified coronary plaque, and as such, the optimal technique for atherosclerosis imaging is not clear, but certainly routine use is not indicated. For a patient like the one you've described for us, what first-line tests would be indicated? So first-line testing should include a fasting lipid profile and a hemoglobin A1C, as well as a fasting glucose. One could also consider measurement of waist circumference and body mass index. Given that he's asymptomatic, there's certainly no indication for stress testing or other functional testing at present. That said, at each visit, patients should be questioned in depth regarding the onset of cardiovascular symptoms, which can be subtle or minimized by patients in some circumstances. Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Thomas Metkis from Johns Hopkins Hospital in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Thomas Metkis from Johns Hopkins Hospital. And our topic is HIV-associated cardiovascular disease. We've been talking about a 52-year-old man with well-controlled HIV. Let's stay with that patient for a little while longer, Dr. Metkis, and let me ask you to continue the discussion by reviewing his presentation for us again. Okay, sure. So that same 52-year-old man, as you mentioned, has well-controlled HIV. He's an active smoker, and he has hypertension and obesity. We'll say that the office blood pressure was 144 over 88, and that's treated with chlorthalidone. We checked a hemoglobin A1C, which
which returned at 6.4%, and a fasting lipid profile, which resulted as a total cholesterol of 240, an HDL cholesterol of 34, a calculated LDL cholesterol of 170, and a triglyceride level of 180, all milligrams per deciliter. So based on these numbers, what would be this patient's 10-year risk of MI or stroke? So using the pooled cohort equation, again, referenced in the recently updated ACC AHA prevention guidelines, and is also available on the web, his 10-year risk of heart attack or stroke is 21%, approximately 1 in 5. If the risk factors of hypertension, smoking, and dyslipidemia were well controlled, the risk would be 2.6%. These percentages can be valuable counseling tools for patients, many of whom don't appreciate the magnitude of their future cardiovascular risk. It's worth noting that this high risk may even be an underestimate, given that the hemoglobin A1c places him in the pre-diabetes category, which is not accounted for in the risk equation. His obesity and his sedentary lifestyle are also additive risks that are not accounted for in the model. Thus, in the office, we should be aggressive about risk factor modification, and just as importantly, transmitting the magnitude of risk to the patient in a manner that the patient can understand well the issues at hand. I want to pick up on the last thing you said, communicating future CV risk to the patient. How should this patient be counseled? I would start by emphasizing that HIV-infected persons are at high risk for cardiovascular disease, which makes it even more important to control all the traditional cardiovascular risk factors. I'd start by commending him on his excellent HIV disease control, but use that point to emphasize that even patients with well-controlled disease can harbor subclinical heart disease. As some of the reviewed studies demonstrate, And once he understands the importance of risk factor modification, I'd start sequentially. That is, major lifestyle changes introduced all at once can be really difficult for patients to sustain. I'd start by assessing his willingness to quit smoking, to begin an exercise program, and to lose weight. And if he has a particular interest or a motivation in any one of these areas, that might be a really great area with which to begin. I think that brings us to a key question here, and that's, how would you treat this patient? Addressing lifestyle factors are key to start with. Smoking cessation is absolutely mandatory, but is often among the most challenging points for patients to implement. Some studies have shown that a minority of HIV-infected smokers are ever even counseled to quit by their care teams. From the clinician's perspective, it's important not to become frustrated and to remain really persistently supportive of smoking cessation efforts, even when an initial attempt fails. Weight loss and an exercise program really go hand-in-hand. Some patients have had weight loss success using fitness trackers or nutritional apps for their smartphones, and this may be a good novel approach if a patient is interested. Once patients begin exercising, they often go on to lose weight. And conversely, once patients lose weight, they become more amenable to exercise. Treating blood pressure and prediabetes, both are conditions which may improve with smoking cessation, exercise, and weight loss. Given obesity and hypertension, it would be reasonable to screen for obstructive sleep apnea as well. If the blood pressure remains elevated to greater than 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury, despite these measures, addition of a second antihypertensive agent could be considered. The specific antihypertensive agent matters less than control of the blood pressure in this clinical circumstance, assuming drug-drug interactions with his antiretroviral therapy regimen are accounted for. Given his high risk, guidelines suggest that statin therapy be initiated. Given possible drug-drug interactions, this should be done with full participation of all the members of his healthcare team, including his infectious disease specialist, his primary care, and cardiology providers, if they're involved, as well as his pharmacist. Initiating statin therapy. 
which statin should be used and which one should be avoided in HIV-infected persons. The most common and concerning drug-drug interaction involves statins and inhibitors of the cytochrome P450 3A4 system, including protease inhibitors. Serum levels of simvastatin and lovastatin are markedly elevated with protease inhibitor co-administration, and simvastatin and lovastatin therefore should not be used with protease inhibitors due to an increased risk of rhabdomyolysis. Atorvastatin levels are modestly boosted by concurrent protease inhibitor use, mandating use at a lower dose. Rosuvastatin can be used similarly. Pravastatin should be dose-adjusted downward when the antiretroviral regimen includes darunavir. Fluvastatin, as well as niacin and fibrates, can be used without dose adjustment. For this patient, not taking a protease inhibitor-based regimen, a moderate dose of atorvastatin would be a reasonable choice. He should be seen back at regular intervals to assess his progress and introduce additional measures for prevention as he achieves each sequential goal. And, of course, interval development of cardiovascular symptoms should be fully addressed in detail as they arise. Thank you, Dr. Metkus. Let me ask you to describe a different patient for us now, if you would, please. So our patient will be a 75-year-old Caucasian man with well-controlled HIV, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease, and he has a baseline creatinine of 1.8. He presents for a follow-up visit describing intermittent palpitations that last for up to two to three hours at a time and abate spontaneously. He says that episodes can occur once or twice per week and are associated with fatigue and breathlessness. An electrocardiogram in the office demonstrates normal sinus rhythm with diffuse, nonspecific T-wave flattening. He's got palpitations lasting two to three hours. They, they happen a couple of times a week. They're accompanied by fatigue and breathlessness. What diagnosis do these symptoms most likely suggest? This symptom complex is pretty characteristic of cardiac dysrhythmia, and the first step in diagnosis would be symptom arrhythmia correlation by capturing the purported symptoms using some sort of ambulatory ECG monitoring, possibly Holter monitoring or other techniques. HIV patients have been demonstrated to have a higher risk of atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter as compared to uninfected historical control patients. And this patient has many of the comorbid risk factors demonstrated to be synergistic with HIV-associated atrial arrhythmia, including specifically Caucasian ethnicity, age, chronic kidney disease, and hypertension. Other diagnostic possibilities in addition to cardiac arrhythmia would include electrolyte disturbances, thyroid disease, possibly underlying pulmonary disease, each of which could cause symptoms in isolation or in association with secondary cardiac arrhythmia. What do we know about the mechanism that predisposes a patient with HIV to atrial arrhythmia? It turns out the mechanism of arrhythmogenicity is not entirely clear, and it's an important area for further study. Increased systemic inflammation has been hypothesized to mitigate, in part, the predisposition to atherosclerosis, and we know that atherosclerosis and atrial arrhythmia share some pathophysiologic mechanisms in general. So the HIV-associated inflammation may be in part responsible for this predisposition to atrial arrhythmias. Subclinical HIV-associated structural heart disease may also play a role. And in this newsletter issue, we reviewed a study of asymptomatic HIV subjects who underwent cardiac MRI. HIV-infected subjects had higher-than-expected levels of intramyocardial fat, and this was a novel finding but could reflect an end-organ manifestation of altered lipid handling. In addition, HIV-infected subjects had more myocardial scar, which the authors of the study hypothesized relates to prior myocarditis. Both myocardial scar and intramyocardial lipid are hypothetical links between HIV, 
structural heart disease, and an arrhythmogenic substrate. Again, this is all speculative, and further studies directed at pathobiologic mechanisms of arrhythmia in HIV-infected persons are very necessary. Now, the treatment of a patient with arrhythmia who is HIV-infected, how is that different from the treatment of AFib and atrial flutter in the general population? We'd start by saying that some assessment of cardiac structure and cardiac function, typically with a 2D echocardiogram, would be necessary to stratify treatment. For example, if mitral stenosis were discovered, treatment would differ. The treatment guidelines referenced below are for those patients with, quote, non-valvular atrial fibrillation, which specifically refers to those patients without mitral valve disease. Other diagnostic tests to be considered are an assessment of thyroid function, consideration of the presence of obstructive sleep apnea, alcohol and substance use screening, and whether intrinsic lung disease is present, all in the right clinical setting. The principles of treatment of arrhythmia in HIV-infected and HIV-uninfected patients are similar. Pillars of treatment include stroke prevention and symptom control. First, regarding stroke prevention, the stroke risk can be calculated using risk scores, specifically the CHADS-2-VASC score, which predicts stroke risk using comorbid conditions, including heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, prior stroke, other vascular disease, and a patient's age. The HAS-BLED score can be calculated, which will assess the risk of bleeding. So the key is balancing stroke risk and bleeding risk in deciding an anticoagulation strategy. Generally, for low or normal bleeding risk patients, those with a CHADS2-VASC score greater than 1 should be considered for systemic anticoagulation. Warfarin or any of the novel anticoagulants could be considered, although warfarin is typically preferred in the setting of renal dysfunction. The symptom status will help guide a rate control or a rhythm control strategy. Rate control can be performed with beta blockers as first line. Rhythm control strategy can include drugs such as sotalol, propafenone, or flecainide, or pulmonary vein isolation, atrial fibrillation, ablation. Both use of rhythm control drugs and ablation and the rate control versus rhythm control strategy should be guided by consultation with an electrophysiologist. All new drug prescriptions should be reviewed with the infectious diseases team and the infectious diseases pharmacist to avoid drug-drug interaction. I'd emphasize that there's no specific clinical trials of management of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter directed specifically at the HIV-infected population and that these treatment strategies are really drawn from guidelines in the general population. However, given the propensity to arrhythmia in this patient population, future clinical trials could certainly be directed at that question. Dr. Metkus, I want to thank you for bringing us today's patients and for sharing your team's input on their management. I'd like to talk about research now and ask you where you think the future of HIV-related CVD care might be heading. So this is a really challenging research issue, in part because the latency period between a given exposure, for example, acute HIV infection, a period of time when there's poorly controlled HIV, the use of a specific antiretroviral drug, the latency between that exposure and the appearance of heart disease can be many years. So prospective studies and randomized controlled studies are challenging in that setting. Hence, I think some very important future studies will be actually well-designed, multi-center, epidemiologic studies that can answer important questions without the challenges inherent in designing randomized controlled trials in this population. Clinically, I think HIV-related heart disease will become increasingly important, particularly worldwide. As antiretroviral therapy becomes more available, the global life expectancy of HIV-infected patients will increase, which we could hypothesize will yield increasing numbers of patients exposed to non-HIV-related complications, including heart disease. 
Ongoing education and maintaining awareness of HIV-related heart disease will hopefully go a long way towards timely diagnosis, number one, and optimal treatment, number two, in both prevention of disease and treatment after it becomes manifest. Well, thank you for sharing those insights, Doctor. Let's wrap things up by reviewing the key points of today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, assessing the risks for subclinical coronary plaque in HIV-infected persons. So our first case reviewed risk factors underlying the subclinical atherosclerosis associated with HIV, and there's really two classes. There are risk factors not associated with HIV, and that includes the obesity, dyslipidemia, the smoking, the sedentary lifestyle, the traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And the second pillar is risk factors associated with HIV, and those include the systemic inflammation, possibly exposure to certain antiretroviral drugs, and possibly prior nadir CD4 count and other risk factors associated with HIV disease itself. The pathogenesis includes increased systemic inflammation and the comorbid traditional risk factors, as I mentioned. And we also reviewed that the utility of atherosclerosis imaging for screening and the functional testing for symptoms really depends on the clinical scenario. And treatment to mitigate HIV-associated coronary risk. So we discussed that optimizing non-HIV-associated risk factors is a critical step in management of even HIV-associated CAD. And I'd emphasize that the risks and the benefits and, importantly, the drug-drug interactions associated with therapy need to be closely attended to in considering dyslipidemia management and most particularly statin therapy in this population. Uh, and finally, diagnosing and managing atrial arrhythmias associated with HIV. We reviewed the risk factors for HIV-associated atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter, which include specifically Caucasian ethnicity, age, chronic kidney disease, and hypertension. Testing strategies for the HIV patient with atrial fibrillation include ECG monitoring for symptom arrhythmia correlation, echocardiography to assess for structural heart disease, and an assessment of thyroid function. And treatment strategies include prevention of stroke should be considered after the diagnosis is made. This includes risk assessment using the CHADS-2 VASC score. And importantly, the decision between rate and rhythm control should be guided by patient symptoms. Dr. Thomas Metkis from the Johns Hopkins Hospital, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. I enjoyed our discussion very much. Thanks so much for having me. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation.
For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHAV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.